0: Amen. Please be seated. And let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the prophecy of Jonah. Jonah, you'll find it on page 920 and 921 of your Pew Bible. It's a short story, really just one full page of Scripture. Jonah, and we'll begin reading in a moment in chapter 3. As probably most of you know, The book of Jonah was our focus at VBS this past week, and as we've done a few times before, I want our sermon this morning to complete that week. In doing so, I hope the kids, I hope the kids hear some things that sound familiar, and I hope the adults and young adults who serve can also profit by this overview of the message of Jonah. Also, parents, let me just encourage you once again to engage your child in conversations about what they learned this week. For those of you who had nothing to do with VBS, this sermon I think is still timely. Romans chapter one, our sermon last week, painted a very grim but wonderfully accurate and penetrating picture of our current culture. For sincere believing Christians in this nation, I think it is all but impossible not to think of Romans 1 right now. Living right now in our country's history is like watching Romans 1 come out of the page and take three-dimensional form. It is both awe-inspiring, discouraging, and frightening, like standing on the edge of a violent storm. To put it another way, we are thankful this past week that the Supreme Court has recently decided to allow us to be Christians when we step out our front door. But the fact that that question was even asked to begin with is deeply unsettling, I know, to all of you. Robert George, professor of jurisprudence at Princeton, warns that in today's Western culture, quote, to unashamedly proclaim the gospel in its fullness is to place in jeopardy one's security, one's personal aspirations and ambitions, one's standing in polite society. One may be discriminated against and denied educational opportunities, worldly recognition and advancement. As Dr. George remarks, the reality is that persecution has already come to us. No, it's not like the persecution of our brothers and sisters in North Korea or the Middle East. Thankfully, no serious person in our society is yet calling for the death and imprisonment of all Christians. Rather, at this point, they simply ask and demand that we be quiet, that we stop mentioning at all anything we believe outside the walls of our church. Yes, they say, the right to private worship in a building should be maintained, but outside that building, we must be, we're told, absolutely secular and atheistic in every area of life, business, medicine, and technology. This, of course, is just another kind of persecution. It's why the Obama administration dragged the Little Sisters of the Poor into court. This order of nuns devoted to caring for the dying poor were sued repeatedly by the government in order to compel them to cover abortions in their health insurance plans. The goal was to fine them millions of dollars and thereby close their ministry to the dying. The state of Pennsylvania was particularly venomous in their desire to destroy the order of nuns, and many other examples could be offered this morning. The simple truth is this. They are no longer willing to tolerate us in our way of life, and they have aligned the Fortune 500 companies, the Media, Hollywood, and Academy to wage cultural war on Orthodox Jews, Muslims, and Christians. But now the question is this how will we respond? Will we respond with love and courage or with rage and fear? Believe it or not, these are the very issues we find in Jonah. So please stand as we will read together, beginning in chapter three of Jonah and through to the end of the book. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, arise, But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant, And said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we thank you for these wonderful words of encouragement and direction to your prophet Jonah. We thank you for the patience that you showed with him, teaching him your ways and how you moved him back from the brink of despair that he might rejoice in the salvation you granted to this great city. We pray, Father, that we, like him, would be saved from our own bitterness and anger and would go forth with joy into the world in which you have created us to act as your emissaries and as your priests. Give us grace and strength to do that this day, Father, and strengthen us for it as we consider this your word. And we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. Amen, please be seated. The book of Jonah is really deep, really deep, but also quite simple in its construction. If you think about it, there are only 3, there are only 3 main actors in the book. The first is Nineveh, the second of course is Jonah, and the third of course is God himself who is pursuing in mercy both Nineveh and Jonah simultaneously. So let's take just a moment to think together about these three and what we can learn from them, from them in this little but powerful book. We can start with Nineveh. Today, it's a city in Iraq called Mosul. But at that time, it was a leading cultural powerhouse known for its violence against its enemies and its mistreatment of vulnerable people, including the people of Israel. I don't think it's much of a stretch to to see something of Romans 1 at work here. We don't have details from Jonah, but the pattern is clear in Scripture and in history. We know how it goes. The people worshipped idols. Instead of worshiping a spiritual divine creator God who is above the creation and therefore above our manipulations. Idolatry always destroys and debases the human heart because it sets up created things rather than the creator. And whenever people turn from worshiping God to worshiping themselves, as we do in our culture, or some other part of the creation... They demean God, of course, but also, sometimes unintentionally, they demean themselves as God's image bearers. Human life life is only sacred if it is holy, if it reflects a transcendent creator. And without this clearly defined and maintained sacred character, human life becomes inevitably cheap. And then it's just a short step toward violence and abuse. Now, living like this, living as Nineveh lived, it's difficult. It's still difficult because God has left us with a conscience. So to make sure the culture of Nineveh could keep on doing its evil, a priestly class of people is appointed to assuage the conscience and ensure religious blessing. Just as today, the Russian dictator Vladimir Putin has co-opted the Russian church to approve all his assassinations and wars, only the constant reminder of one sovereign judge of heaven and earth who sees all things and sees every injustice and does not discriminate in judgment can begin to keep in check our violent tendencies." But sadly, this is an old, old story which repeats itself in every civilization that has ever existed. It became manifest in my ancestral home, the United Kingdom, when many years ago, the United Kingdom adopted the slave trade. The English, my ancestors, were great shopkeepers, great traders and sailors. But in their pride... They thought to trade in people as they would trade in gold and silver. The consequences were beyond horrific. The state church, Anglicanism, sometimes fought these things, but also ensured that publicly at least, God was on the side of England as it built its empire on the backs of the weak. This is also manifest in our nation today with its history of exploitation and slavery. It is especially seen today in the form of abortion and infanticide, where people once again become objects and not image bearers. The priests, the priesthood of our own nation, the therapists, assure us that we'll be fine and they offer to us many magic orange bottles of medicine to ensure we never get too down about our rampant acts of wickedness. They keep assuring us that all our nastiness is really down to our parents or some lack of love and acceptance, and yet we never grow freer or more at peace. They can cover something up, but they cannot bring real healing or real peace. Now, something like this, something like this was the situation in Nineveh, as it has been in every great civilization. So we might ask, why is God choosing to intervene this time? If this is kind of just the way of the sinful world, why is God stepping in here? The answer is given to us in chapter 1, verse 2. God says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. More literally in Hebrew, God says, Their evil is in my face. In other words, God is patient with the nations of the world, but that patience has a breaking point, and Nineveh has reached that breaking point. In fact, the language here is almost identical to the language used of Sodom and Gomorrah, where human trafficking and sexual immorality were rampant. In such cases, God does step in to preserve the creation, to preserve human life. If he did not do this, the whole world system would collapse. And yet, God is merciful in doing this. In fact, Jonah ends, the book of Jonah ends with God reminding Jonah that if he were to fully judge the earth, if he were to fully judge this city as Jonah wants him to, many innocent people would die in the process. God says at the end of Jonah, Jonah 4, verse 11, and should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Sometimes people ask me why God does not directly judge our nation for its terrible crimes throughout the years. My answer to them is usually twofold. First of all, he is. He is. Much of what we're seeing today is that judgment. But second, God waits out of mercy for the sake of many vulnerable and righteous in our land. Yes, destruction of our nation and many others would demonstrate his glory and it would be just. But have you ever thought about what would happen to those who are on food stamps, those who have nothing to eat? What would happen to the thousands of people today getting cancer treatment in the hospitals if those hospitals were inaccessible? During the pandemics and the riots of years past, one of our doctors had a police escort to the hospital in the mornings. So desperate was the need to protect him and to get him to the vulnerable. And can you really say, can you really say that the world stage would be safer if the U.S. were destroyed for its many sins? Nineveh Nineveh reminds us that God has a limit but is fundamentally merciful to the nations for the sake of all that are in those nations. And that the judgment we may be longing for, the judgment we may be wanting, would not just catch up the wicked, but would destroy and harm millions of innocent people and weak and needy people. And so Nineveh is critical to this story. The second character in the story, of course, is the reluctant prophet, Jonah. The book is rightly titled Jonah, not Nineveh. The focus of the book is on Jonah and God's people, not so much on the wider world of unbelief. So for example, we're never told what Nineveh's exact sins were, who the king was at the time, or any other details about Nineveh. The Romans one judgment that threatens Nineveh is important to the book, but it's the background for what the book really wants to say. This is primarily then, primarily brothers and sisters, a story about what God's people are to do as they interact with a wicked world and a wicked nation. In fact, this is so much the case, it's so much the case That some Jews throughout history have seen this book as more of a parable of sorts. Now, I don't personally agree with that interpretation. I, I think this is history because Jesus quotes it as history. However, you can see how they might have thought that, that it was a parable. Jonah represents, in a sense, for them the entire nation of Israel as it struggles with its identity as God's people. The names are not the key issues but how God's people in every age struggle with their calling to be light and salt. On the one hand, it is clear from Jonah that wrath is real. God's hatred for sin is essential to the book. His impending judgment is the background for everything that happens. And so the church of God, as it reads Jonah, must reject entirely the wicked ways of nations like Nineveh. Jesus reminds us that if we adopt their practices, we lose our saltiness and our useless, only good to be thrown out into the street. We add nothing. We simply reflect the culture back to itself and reinforce its sin. But the book of Jonah reminds us that A negative rejection and abhorrence of the world is not enough for God's people. It is not simply our calling to sit on the edge of the storm and curse the darkness and hate the nation we're now a part of. There must be a love and concern for neighbor. And this is where Jonah is stumbling. He's been a prophet before. He's happy to carry any number of messages to Israel, even words of judgment. He's accepted the other tasks that God has given him, but not this one. This one he will not do. Nineveh has hurt Israel and many other nations. Maybe Jonah even personally knows people, families, who've been brutalized by Nineveh, people who've experienced enslavement, assault, robbery, and murder at the hands of the Ninevites. So when God comes to him and calls him to bring an opportunity of mercy to this nation, he runs in the opposite direction. We can't know for sure, but we think Jonah was heading for Spain. This struggle in Jonah this struggle, this unwillingness to bring a word of mercy is actually never healed in this book. The book ends without telling us what happened next to Jonah. It ends with him still embittered by God's mercy to Nineveh. Jonah was fine being God's prophet if that meant raining down judgment on those who hurt him and who hurt the people of God when God asked him to take a word of mercy to Israel's enemies, he refused and acted in radical disobedience. The wrath of God against Jonah's rebellion is, of course, pictured in the storm. The sailors on the boat, the men accustomed to sailing the Mediterranean, they sense that the storm isn't normal. It's not natural. They rightly, though it's probably superstitiously, they sense there's some divine cause here. Only when Jonah is thrown into the sea of judgment does the storm cease. But in that judgment, God once again shows mercy to his wayward prophet. Jonah is swallowed and saved. In his own words, his psalm of praise, we didn't read it this morning, but chapter 2 is his psalm of praise, and he actually uses the words and concepts of the psalter. Jonah thanks God for not killing him for his rebellion, but delivering him. The hope is then that Jonah will emerge from his grave-like experience in the fish with a greater desire for mercy, an ability to feel for the people of Nineveh who are about to go down to the grave themselves. And of course, the same is to be true for us. We need to remember what God has done for us, how patient he is with us, and draw on that to be merciful to the people around us, to our own culture. Some of us may be tempted to simply hate this nation, hate our state, hate our leaders. We may even long to just see the whole thing burned to the ground, but this is not from God. God's super abounding mercy toward you is meant to teach you mercy to others. So we are to pray for the whole world, and especially our own nation. Jesus puts this beyond misunderstanding in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. At the start of chapter 3, God repeats his call narrative then to his reluctant prophet. We're told that the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise and go to Nineveh. This time Jonah obeyed and the people of Nineveh stepped back from their wickedness. They did not, all of them, convert to a full faith. That becomes later on clear in Scripture. But they did relent from the worst of their deeds. There was a real change of life and of heart. In Hebrew, the word is the word to turn, to turn back. And we're told with a flurry of these words that the, in the section of Jonah that Jonah turned and went as God commanded, and then Nineveh turned from its evil And finally, that then God turned from his destruction. Just as with Sodom, God was willing to turn from disaster so long as there was any righteousness in that great city. For the sake of the innocent and the vulnerable who cry to God, he will not easily destroy any nation. In Jonah, then, you can see how we as the church are to respond to passages like Romans 1. Jonah represented the whole people of Israel as they struggled with their calling to be salt and light in the world. At times, Israel felt nothing but hatred for their enemies. And no wonder the pharaohs enslaved them, The Greek kings tried to destroy them. The Romans occupied them and belittled them. And yet all along, God was calling them to be a nation of priests, to bring the world to God through the word of mercy and of judgment, and through prayer to intercede for our world, that it might be preserved, especially for the cause of the vulnerable. The more we ponder this wonderful book, The question comes the same question that faced Jonah. Can I, do I care about these people around me? Have I reached a point where I just want to watch the whole thing burn? You see, I think there are two ways, two ways we can be broken and defeated by our current culture. The first way is obvious. We simply agree with it, assimilate to it, and pass under its shadow. This is the approach of the mainline Protestant church. Like Saruman in the Lord of the Rings, they decided years ago that there would be no victory against the shadow, that it wasn't possible, so they aligned and allied with dominant Western secular atheism. That secularism then demanded that they jettison all their historical beliefs, the bodily resurrection, the virgin birth, the salvation and conversion of sinners. And to remain relevant, they sweetly complied. But the secularist, like Sauron does not share power. This alignment only prolonged, delayed their death and atrophy. And so the Protestant mainline churches continue to die the slow death of uselessness. But there's another way. There's another way to be crushed by our culture. And this one can be missed more easily. In this pattern, you remain faithful to the views in Romans 1. I'm sure we'll do that as a church. You agree with God's insightful diagnosis of our age. But then with Jonah, you become so angry with the world. You become so hostile to it that you no longer care for it or feel for the people lost in it. You no longer see the millions of people around you who are going to judgment with no hope. You speak often of the family of God, the church, but never of every human person as a child of God, as Paul teaches us in Acts 17. One of the greatest messages of this book is that God loves Jonah, he speaks to him, he saves him. But God also has a relationship of mercy and concern with Nineveh. They also are made in his image, and their destruction is no small thing to God. We never, we never should invite people in our lives to have a relationship with God, but rather remind them that they already do have a relationship. In him they live and move and have their being. They are his offspring, made in his image, children of his son Adam, brothers and sisters, with us according to the flesh. This is what makes their condition so desperate and so important. They are under wrath, not out of relationship. And no matter what they believe or what they say, they will have to face their maker. They cannot escape him. Death will inevitably bring them into his full presence. Jonah teaches us to see the Ninevehs of the world in a new light and to share in God's mercy toward them. This leaves us with one last great character to consider, and I hope we've been considering him all along. He is the star of the book of Jonah, he is the wonder of scripture, God himself. The triune God of scripture is a God of mercy and determination. He is resilient in the face of Nineveh's sin, but also in the face of his own people's rebellion. In this book, it is God, notice this, it is God who does all the seeking and is behind every good thing that happens in this book. When Jonah runs away, God does not pursue him to destroy him. He could have done that. After all, Jonah was a prophet and had directly refused a divine command given to him by divine revelation. God could have easily given up on Jonah and moved on to another prophet, but instead he hunts Jonah down. He teaches him in the fish. He even continues to speak to him when he sulks outside the gates of Nineveh. He is relentless in his love and patience for his sinful and rebellious people. And he's so kind. He's so kind. Another time, go through the book and look at how God talks to Jonah. He doesn't rage at him. He doesn't insult him or even bring harsh accusations against him. He simply repeats his command to him. Go back, Jonah go back and do what I told you to do. This is how God is with us, isn't it? He could have struck us down a hundred times for insubordination, but he doesn't. He's a God of mercy who seeks the wandering sheep. When Jonah finally does reach Nineveh, and it's easy to miss this, but notice that God blesses Jonah's ministry. Yes, of course, it's not what Jonah wanted, But it is another act of God's amazing grace to him. The people of Nineveh do not torture or execute Jonah. Rather, they believe him and receive him and honor him. Had Jonah gone to his own Israelite king, and this is undoubtedly one of the great subtexts of this book, had he gone to an Israelite king with this message, to his own people, he probably would have been killed, like so many other prophets before him. But in God's grace to Jonah, Jonah's ministry is one of success. Nineveh turns. And even when Jonah fails to thank God for that, God comes to him again through the lesson of the plant and teaches him. The book of Jonah ends, and this is so striking. The book of Jonah ends with a loving and faithful God seeking a reluctant and bitter And stubborn prophets. The longer I live, I know, and the more I read scripture and the great works of Christian theology, the more I'm drawn again and again to the words of God spoken to the prophet Isaiah in chapter 65. Listen to what God says I was ready to be sought by those who did not seek after me, I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, as never before, God has held out his hands to the whole world. He freely offers the gospel to all people. He invites those without money, those without reputation, those who have nothing. He offers peace and eternal life without a price. In return, we blaspheme him, ignore his offer, and destroy each other. And so we have come to the roots of this story of Jonah's little book. Behind it all is the old tragic story of man in the Garden of Eden. Our first parents sins, and immediately, without instruction, they hid from God. And yet, just as he did that first day, he seeks us. But we hide from him. We run from him. Jonah and Nineveh are lost, but by the grace of a seeking God. And so it is today. Those of us in the church, just like those outside the church, are utterly dependent on the grace and pursuit of God. So, brothers and sisters, in light of Romans 1 and Jonah, pray for the nation in which we live ask for God's mercy, and remember especially the weak and vulnerable. We pray for our presidents and governors in our worship service in part for this reason, not because we always agree with them, but rather we seek the peace of the nation for the sake of millions in it who do not know their right hand from their left. When you have opportunity to share the gospel with someone, Remember that it is not you who speaks, but the seeking God who speaks through you. Sharing the gospel in any way is an incredibly hard thing to do, especially in our cultural moment. It is taboo on so many levels. The greatest encouragement I can give you and myself is to remember that it is God who made us an evangelistic people. He sends us because he has sent his son. He is seeking through you and me, and that is a great encouragement. Lastly, take time to remember today the way in which God pursued you. If Jonah had really done that, I think the book would have ended quite differently. Jonah should have seen God's amazing grace to him, a grace that pursued him across the seas, delivered him from death. He was meant to see that he has nothing less in his experience than death and resurrection. So it is for this reason that Jesus quotes Jonah and uses it as a sign of his own death and three-day burial. Having experienced the stormy sea of God's judgment, having been taken down into the depths of the grave, having been restored to life, all this was meant to make Jonah a preacher of the gospel and a man of mercy. So if we are tired and sick of our neighbors, our unsaved friends and family, if if we've lost that gospel focus, that love for them, that longing for their salvation, nothing will stir it back up like a fresh view of our own death and resurrection in Christ as God has sought us in him. Amen. Let's pray. Indeed, Father, even as this sermon is preached, your hands are opened wide to a desperate and wicked world in which your own people run from you in sin and the people of the world curse your name. And yet you are a God of incredible mercy and abounding love. Turn us again towards your love. Seek us and find us and make us instruments of that seeking, we pray to the world. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.